You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Alright everybody, good to be with you again. We're in week three of an eight-week series in the book of Romans, specifically looking at Romans chapter 8. And in the first week, a couple of weeks ago, we saw beautifully articulated by the Apostle Paul and read to us just now by David that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason there's no condemnation is because Jesus in our place fulfilled the law, lived the perfect life that we could never live and likewise in our place died the death that we should have died. And so because on those two counts, he both fulfilled the law and paid the penalty for our sin, we can now stand under the judgment of God that there is no condemnation for us. Um, That is an incredible truth that we picked up in the first week. And then last week, uh, we saw that um, Paul sort of distinguished between two ways of living. And uh, on the one hand, we can live according to the flesh. That is, we can uh, pour all of our effort and energy into, um, into sin and corruption and uh, things that are identified with the fallenness of this world. Or we can walk in step with the Spirit and have the mindset of the Spirit, which means we will pour all of our effort and energy into making all of life all about Jesus. And, uh, and so th- as those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, we are constantly being called to uh, immerse ourselves in that great mission um, to make all of life all about Jesus, to honour him in all that we say and we do. And we, we do that as we stumble as we fail, uh, we, we, the point is that our heart's desire is turned towards wanting to glorify Jesus just as the Holy Spirit who resides within us uh, wants to make all of life all about him. Now today uh, we have this beautiful assurance given to us, um, this beautiful assurance that God loves us uh, because he has adopted us as his children. And this is really, what I think, the, the foundation on which the rest of chapter 8 is built. You might even say the rest of the gospel is built. This foundational truth that we have been adopted as God's children. And that's where we're going to get to today. But before we get to the adoption bit, we, uh, we had this kind of link between what we saw last week and this week's passage. And you pick that up in verse 12 to 13. This is what it says. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this is the the link where he's still using the language of of flesh and spirit and uh, and then he's going to move us into this language of adoption and sonship. And and so he begins by saying, look, you kind of got a decision before you and this is a a daily or even minute by minute decision that we have as 
believers, as those who have the Spirit dwelling within us, we have this decision between giving life to the flesh or putting the flesh to death. And the image that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was the image of a fire. And this is kind of like representative of that, that fleshly life, that corrupted life, that sinful life. That, that, that There's this fire and we have this minute-by-minute minute choice before us either to give life to the, fo- to the fire, like give oxygen to the fire, fan the flames of that fire, is what he's referring to when he says, if you live according to the flesh, right? Giving it life, or we have this decision before us, which is in step with the Spirit, to extinguish the fire. To extinguish the fire of the flesh. That's where he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. And this is, this is as I say, a minute-by-minute active decision put before us as people who live in the now and the not yet people who live with the spirit dwelling within us but who have not yet been glorified he'll get to that later in the chapter the idea of glorification the final state that God wants us to be in in the new creation but in the time between we have this constant tension that we live in we have this battle that we're waging between gratifying the flesh or living by the spirit I remember after the Black Saturday fires, um, my wife Renee uh, was then still actively working as a paramedic and she, uh, along with every emergency services worker in the state and country, was um, heading out day to day uh, into that, those areas that were burned to a crisp and uh, I remember she was actively working around Marysville, literally in the you know, immediate aftermath of Black Saturday. And uh, just the devastation that she described was just, it was apocalyptic. And the thing about that landscape after the fires, after that they had extinguished those fires, the threat was still there because fire can sort of smolder, particularly in really old gum trees fire can smolder for weeks even months and then spontaneously combust or erupt fan into flame and so that's a real danger for people like Renee who are working in those areas in the aftermath of such a incredibly intense fire and so it is in our experience we this this the fire of the flesh has been extinguished the spirit now dwells within us but that fire still smolders it's still a threat to us we can choose to go and fan those those flames um into a into the 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 roaring tempest that they once were and so we need to actively day to day choose life this is where he says if you if you uh if you live according to the flesh, uh, sorry, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. That's a pretty stark choice he puts before us, between life and death, between spirit and flesh. And so this needs to be an active, ongoing commitment to giving life to the, to, to the spirit and putting the flesh to death. 
All of us will experience these flare-ups. All of these will, ex- will, will have this existential threat at some point in our lives that the, the, the flames of the flesh can erupt again. The question is, where is your heart? Where, is your, where are your desires? At the very core of your being is the Spirit of God calling you to live in step with the Spirit. Or have you given up? Have you waved that white flag and just, you know, run back into your house to face the flames by yourself? Or are you walking in the kind of victory that he talks about here in chapter 8? I think one of the reasons that we don't actively put sin to death is because we don't actually believe that we've been liberated from slavery to sin. We don't actually believe and apply and absorb that truth that we have been set free. Yes, of course, we're going to struggle and stumble, but the the power of sin, the power of death, the power of the devil is no, long, no longer has a grip on us. We have been set free. Paul uses the language here very reminiscent of the, 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 the Exodus, which is the kind of keystone story of the whole Bible, um, the story that we named our church after, right? That, that, that idea that the people of God have been liberated from slavery, never again to be under the yoke of the Egyptian oppressors. And yet, throughout their time in the wilderness, the people of Israel kept thinking, man, I wish I was back in slavery. That would be better than this rubbish. So it is with us. Sometimes we doubt that we have actually been fully liberated from the power of sin. And so we don't put it to death because we don't believe that we can. read verse 12 again so then brothers and sisters we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh i like the english standard version translation it says so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh we don't owe a debt to the flesh we need to get this out of our minds that somehow, well, I'm not perfect yet. I'm, I'm only human. I'm, all, I'm going to fall. I'm going to fail. We kind of have this idea that we, we need to keep paying our overlords. You know, that, that the sin slave master that I used to be under the yoke of, well, I just need to kick him some tribute from time to time, you know, just because he still has some power over me. He says, no, you are not indebted to the flesh. You don't owe your flesh anything. You're not obligated in any way. Last week we celebrated, for the first time in our church's history, clearing the debt. Incredible, amazing feeling of liberation. We don't have to turn up every month now and kick the diocese a thousand or so dollars. Basically just keeping our heads above water, paying off the interest. We don't have to. What a tragedy. What an insanity it would be if every month from now on we kept paying them a thousand bucks. Why? We have no obligation. We are not debtors to the flesh. Sometimes our flesh can appear to us like this, like one of those really 
terrible ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends who's always grabbing after us, wanting us to come back, texting us in the middle of the night. You don't owe them anything. That relationship is over. You're now wedded to Christ. And any debt that you, you owed to the flesh has been paid by Jesus himself. Now the only debt that we have is a debt to our Saviour. Our debt is a debt of love and gratitude. Our obligation is to make all of life all about him. So we need to be clear about this. Satan is going to make you think that you have a debt to pay to the flesh. Whether it's Satan or just your own messed up inner voice, a kind of inner Stockholm syndrome, like you like maybe we should just spend a little time back in slavery. Satan's voice from without, that inner weird voice from within is going to make you doubt your liberation. It might sound like this. Um, yeah, good Christians have been freed from sin and the power of sin, but then there's you. That's the kind of nasty, greasy, insidious, pernicious voice that Satan uses doesn't come out in complete opposition to the truth because he knows the spirit of God within you testifies to the truth so instead he says yeah that's true for everyone else or for the good Christians for the praying Christians but you you still owe a debt you're still mine nonsense satanic nonsense Here's the ground for your assurance that you have been set free from the power of sin. Ready? Here's the ground of it all. Here's the foundation. Here's the bedrock. Here's where you go when you hear that voice from without or voice from within. When you hear that voice of doubt, here's where you go. The ground of your assurance is your adoption as a child of God. Verse 14. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. This is the ground of your assurance. This is so important that you understand that if you're a Christian today, if the Spirit resides within you, if you're living and walking according to God's Spirit, led by God's Spirit, then it's because you are God's Son. And it's really important that we emphasize that sonship issue. The CSB Bible that we use is, uh, uses um, uh, inclusive, gender-inclusive translation. It's, it doesn't just refer to brothers, it's brothers and sisters. It doesn't just refer to sons, it's sons and daughters, except when it's really theologically important that it keeps, um, that it keeps the original literal translation and that's the case here 
Of course this applies to both men and women. Of course all of us in our church are God's sons and daughters. But the reason that it preserves that idea of sonship is because it's, it's so important for us to understand this. In the first century that Paul's writing into, if you were the firstborn son, you had hit the jackpot. If you were the firstborn son, then you got everything. If you were uh, any son in the family, then you got inheritance. If you were a daughter, you had to marry someone who was rich if you wanted any money. That's just the way that it worked. Patriarchal society, this is what drove the, um, the idea of uh, dowry, right? That, um, that if you're a daughter, you had to try and meet someone who could make something of themselves. If you're a son, you got all of the inheritance. And so that's why Paul's so emphatic on this point, and that's why our, our translation has preserved this point. If you are led by the Spirit, that is, if the Spirit dwells within you, that is, if there is now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus and, in, and Christ Jesus is in you by His Spirit, then you are God's Son. You are God's Son. That means that you have been adopted into His family. That means as his son, you are an heir to everything he has. That almost seems like a blasphemous thing to say if it wasn't written in the Bible. Everything that Jesus has, you have by virtue of your adoption as a son, a sibling of Jesus. Now, it's really beautiful. The way that Paul describes this, this sonship, it actually subverts the whole idea of that patriarchal system. He uses the language of the patriarchal system to subvert the patriarchal system. It was with the gospel that the whole idea that men and women are of equal value and worth really came into the, the foundations of our own Western civilization. The idea that women should be uh, afforded all of the rights that men are afforded, though it's taken hundreds of years, thousands, to, to reach where we are today, had its genesis in the first gospel preaching of the Christian church. Just watch this. Watch the way that Paul uses the patriarchal system to subvert the system in Galatians 3. This is what he says. But since that faith has come, the faith in our Lord Jesus, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Right? That's the adoption point and the, the, the fact that we, by virtue of being sons, have, have an inheritance of everything that God has himself. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's the point he's trying to make? It's a point that subverts gender barriers as well as cultural, racial barriers of every kind. Not that the gospel obliterates maleness and femaleness or Jewishness and Greekness or slaveness even or freeness. It doesn't 
it doesn't destroy those things, but it radically reorders it. I am still a man, but I am not, by virtue of being a man, any more privileged of God's love and salvation than any woman. Paul can say, I am still a Jew, but I am not any more privileged of God's love and salvation than any Gentile. That's the power of the gospel. And so you have this all wrapped up together, the fact that by virtue of our sonship, we are heirs of all things, and that by virtue of the power of the gospel, every single person on the face of the earth, male, female, young, old, black, white, has free access to this adoption. Incredibly powerful idea. And one that we need to take a hold of. We need to immerse ourselves in. He makes this really explicit in verse 16 and 17, where he says, We are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus is an heir to, as the firstborn son of God, we are heirs of as well. Staggering, stunning truth. So this is the, the basis of our assurance as God's beloved. The reason that you can say, God loves me now. In spite of everything that's happened in the past week, God, with this all-absorbing, energetic love, is pursuing me in love and looks at me with love. The basis for that assurance that that's true is our adoption as God's sons. If you've been around at all, you'll know this is my favourite doctrine of Christianity. The doctrine of adoption, to me, is the most beautiful, powerful, intoxicating truth of our faith. I really like the, the way that the late J.I. Packer puts it in his brilliant book, Knowing God. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. <laughs> I love this. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Do you know this truth? Have you taken the time to immerse yourself in the truth that you are the adopted beloved of God? Earlier in the year, we spent two, two Sundays in a sermon series called The Father's Heart. Uh, I tried to find it online and then I remembered we didn't broadcast it. It felt like just kind of a word for that time and that season. 
But you might remember just the fact that it was such a beautiful thing just to immerse ourselves in the fatherly love of God for those couple of weeks. To remember and to experience the fact that we are his beloved. I think that in spite of teaching through this and I think some of us have not yet fully immersed ourselves in that truth. We're yet to accept it and absorb ourselves in it. It's so important, my friends, it's so important that we take the time to accept and absorb this truth. Understanding, receiving and experiencing this truth can, can, will powerfully impact the way that you live the Christian life. Up until Jesus came along and started to pray to God as Father and tell us to do the same, no one spoke to God like this. No one experienced God like this. For the Jews, there was a vague sense that God was the Father of Israel, but to say God is my Father was a revolutionary concept delivered to us by the only one who actually had the authority to tell us it was so by the Son of God himself. This truth will powerfully shape the way you live the Christian life. See it, verse 14 to 15. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God is my dada. He's my dada. Those of you who are parents, fathers, know the thrill of hearing your child say dada for the first time. I remember India, her first words, her first word, discernible, was dada. Dada. It's really fascinating throughout the globe. uh, (laughs) I was just about to get into etymology and it's just not important. But it is kind of fascinating that throughout the globe there are the words for dad, all throughout different languages, are often very similar. Dada, Papa, Pata, in this case, Abba. In the first century, in, uh, throughout uh, Israel, you would have little kids saying their first word, Abba, Ab, 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 Abba. That's what Abba means. Paul chooses that word very specifically to describe and paint a picture of what our relationship to God is like. God is holy, like a consuming fire who speaks the universes into being. And he's 
Ab, 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 Abba, my daddy, my father. Henri Nguyen uh, spent a lot of time contemplating the fatherly love of God and our place as the beloved children of God. And here's something he said. He said, uh, calling God Abba, Father, is different from giving God a familiar name. It's not just that we have a familiar name for God instead of a distant name. Familiar name instead of a name, a, 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 an office of respect. It's different from giving God a familiar name. Calling God Abba is entering into the same intimate, fearless, trusting and empowering relationship with God that Jesus had. This is not just semantics. Calling God Abba, Father, is entering into something. And I'm saying some of us still need to enter in. Some of us still need to throw off the idea of God simply as distant judge and enter into the familial relationship. The relationship with God where you can just come to him at any moment of the day and say, Abba, that's what we need. That will powerfully reshape your life. That's the power of adoption. And all of us as God's children have been adopted. Case closed. Most of you know by now because I refer to it so much. But you know that my sister, Annalie, my younger sister, is uh, adopted. There's the pick. From the first day we brought her home, my two brothers there and I, uh, with Annalie, and that was the first day. My my mum and dad went to Seoul in South Korea and uh, picked her up from the orphanage there. Obviously it was years in the making, um, but yeah, we adopted her. We brought her home and I can say without any hesitation that from that day onwards, from that day that we first held her in our arms until today, there has never once in my mind been a single thought, even for a moment, that she's not mine, that she's not my sister, that she's not in every way on the same level as my two brothers by birth. That is not in question, even for a scintilla of a second, there is no doubt in my mind that she is ours, she belongs. I think my dad's on the Zoom this morning, if, you know, the day he dies, my sister, along with the three of us boys, brothers by birth, my sister will have access to everything that we have access to by way of inheritance. Everything that comes to us from the father will be hers by virtue of her adoption into our family. 
So it is. So it is with you and I, brothers and sisters, sons of God, adopted into his family, co-heirs with Christ himself. Now, imagine, imagine the tragedy. Imagine the tragedy if one day my sister woke up and just started behaving like she was orphaned again. Can you imagine the turmoil that she would experience if by some tragedy the knowledge of her adoption was taken from her and suddenly she was thrown into the turmoil of being an orphan in a city of 10 million people? The helplessness, the loneliness, the fear, the anxiety. I can barely begin to think about it. It would be gut-wrenching. He says, verse 15, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Christian, are you prone to this tragedy? Are you prone to the tragedy of waking up some days and behaving like you are an orphan? Interacting with the world as if you are completely cut off from the fatherly love of God. Interacting with the world on on the grounds of anxiety and helplessness and fear that go with being an orphan. This is a tragedy. Paul is saying, you weren't given that spirit You were given the spirit of adoption. So interesting the way, I was just thinking about this last week, when Jesus, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus tells his followers not to fear, not to worry, he always follows it up by saying something like, your father knows what you need. The basis of our assurance and the basis of the... the, um, sweet experience of not fearing anymore is the fact that we have a father who loves us. Do you know that truth? Do you walk in that truth? Do you experience day to day life as an adopted son and daughter of God. Uh, One of our uh, Sydney Anglican friends, Tony Payne, just wrote recently an article on fear in the time of COVID, and here's a little snippet. He says, As we grow in faith, love and hope, the kind of fear that belongs to our old lives, the flesh, begins to diminish. The fear of death, 
the fear of what others might do to us, the fear that protects ourselves and our well-being and our possessions at all costs, the anxiety-producing illusion that we can master our environment and manage every aspect of our lives and control our futures, that dissolves when we realise that God's will determines the future, not ours, and I would add, when we realise that God loves us and has adopted us as his children. Now, my fear just spiked when I looked at the clock at the back of the wall, but I do have one last thing that I just have to share with you. And that is just the acknowledgement that I think many of us right now are thinking, I believe that, but I don't experience that. I believe that I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. But I don't experience it day to day. My, my assurance of God's love and mercy and provision gives way to fear and anxiety and worry. I hear you, friends. I hear you. Here's what I know. The people I know who have absorbed this truth of their adoption and have absorbed it into their head and their heart and their hands, right? It permeates their thoughts and their feelings and their actions. Those people who have really absorbed this have learned to listen daily for the affirmation from God himself that they are his beloved. That's what they're doing that we might not be doing. They're listening daily for the affirmation. Now, I don't think God is just going to impose this on you. This is what we think, we, we sometimes, oh, sorry, me. This is what I, 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 I fall back on the idea, well, if God wants me to know something, he'll tell me. I, that's not really how the Spirit speaks more often than not. It's as James says, you know, he, he Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It's something you need to lean in and, and open your ear to. And as we do that daily, listening for the voice of God, the Spirit speaks to us about this. The Spirit testifies to the truth about the fact that we are God's beloved. The people I know who have got this spend time each day listening listening for the voice of God. The Spirit is speaking. Verse 16 to 17, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The suffering bit we're going to get to next week. Something to look forward to. But right now, I want you to hear that, that the Spirit is speaking. He's testifying, right? He's giving evidence. He's, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. 
You need to cultivate a listening ear or a listening spirit to hear that testimony day to day. Speaking of testimonies, I want to finish with the testimony of a woman who I think just her story just speaks so beautifully to all that we've been talking about. So by way of conclusion, um, there's a woman uh, in, in the last century, 20th century, a Pakistani Muslim named Bilki Sheikh, and she wrote a book called I Dared to Call Him Father. And I want to read to you her experience of meeting God the Father and being saved through God the Son and how she, she, how she experienced all of that through the ministry of God the Spirit. I'm going to read this and then, and then we're done. She writes... No Muslim, I felt certain, ever thought of Allah as his father. Since childhood, I had been told that the surest way to know about Allah was to pray five times a day and study and think on the Quran. Hesitantly, I spoke his name aloud. I tried different ways of speaking to him, And then I found myself trusting that he was indeed hearing me just as my earthly father had always done. Father, oh my father, God. I cried with growing confidence. My voice seemed unusually loud in the large bedroom as I knelt on the rug beside my bed. But suddenly that room wasn't empty anymore. He was there. I could sense his presence. I could feel his hand laid gently on my head. It was as if I could see his eyes filled with love and compassion. He was so close that I found myself laying my head on his knees like a little girl sitting at her father's feet. For a long time I knelt there sobbing quietly, floating in his love. Oh God, I cried, don't wait a moment. Please, come into my life. Every bit of me is open to you. I did not have to struggle or worry about what would happen. I had said yes. Christ was in my life now. And I knew it. Do you know it? Is the basis of your assurance of God's love your adoption as his son? Whom the son sets free He is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Let's pray. Father, Abba, Dada, thank you.
Thank you for this great assurance. You're not just putting up with us. You're actively pursuing us. The way you feel about us is overwhelming love, acceptance, provision, protection. You're a good father. And through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you have made us your children. Oh God, help us to bask and bathe and soak in this truth. May we absorb it right in to our head, our heart, our hands, that our lives would be changed by this truth. No more slaves to sin. No more under the yoke of fear. No more susceptible to the wiles of Satan. But set free. Adopted. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ our Lord. I pray, Lord, this day, this week, the rest of this year, that we would take time daily to listen for the voice of the Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.